So today we begin our studies through the book of Romans. And before we launch into this first message, a little bit of background concerning this book. Most scholars agree that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome, and he wrote it while he was in Corinth. Now at the time he would have written this, which probably would be somewhere in the A.D. 50s, the church at Rome would have been composed mostly of Gentile believers who had come to faith in Christ earlier. I say that because not long before this letter was written, the Roman Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome, and that would have left the church with mostly a Gentile population. So there are several things that make up this book, one of which, for example, is the relationship between Jew and Gentile in the New Covenant, but also aspects of the paganism of the lifestyle of the people in those times and how it interrelates to being a Christian in that day. So it'll be important for us to keep some of this in context, as you'll see when we go through this message, and to remember that the the texts of Scripture are not written directly to us. They're written directly to them. They're written for us and for our benefit. And if we're going to derive the benefit, it will help us to understand what it meant to them, what are the cultural trappings that would have shaped their understanding of some of these things. Now, having said that, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 and verse 17. But before we move into discussing the text, I want to lay a little bit of prefatory groundwork on the subject of righteousness and faith and holiness Some of the really big-ticket words, the just shall live by faith, righteousness, justice, those kind of things. But let's look at the text first of all, reading from the ESV. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom you have received grace, excuse me, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about, notice this phrase, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now if you'll just look down at verse 17, the middle part of the verse where he writes of the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that last phrase you should have heard before already because that was part of our Older Testament reading from the book of Habakkuk. That's where Paul is quoting it from here. All right, there ends the reading of God's infallible and inerrant word. Some of you are old enough here today to remember one of the most popular music groups in the 1960s was a duo called the Righteous Brothers. Now, I don't even know if they actually were literal brothers, but I heard an interview with one of the band members at one time, and he was asked to describe the significance of that name, Righteous Brothers. And normally, you know, when we think of the word righteous in our time, we think of somebody of impeccable behavior or sterling moral character. But now their name 
was not so much about morality, but about the quality of their music. See, in the 1960s, the phrase or the term righteous was also a kind of exclamation that people would use to express their approval and admiration of someone else or something. You know, kind of like the the long since disused word groovy. Remember, that was a real popular word back in the 60s. Groovy, man. That That was something good. And so with this term righteous, someone once heard the music of this this duo and exclaimed to them, man, that's righteous, brother. In other words, it was good music, music they could be proud of. And so they stuck with that name, the Righteous Brothers. Now that word righteous is a word that appears all over the place in this book of Romans. And one of the main things that Paul emphasizes continually in the book of Romans is righteousness. Now, that word, like several others that we will frequently read in this book, is one that we hear and repeat often in our churches. And we all sort of assume that we know what we mean by the term righteous or righteousness. Now, that may work for us broadly speaking, but in this case, it is of the utmost importance that we understand what Paul and the Bible mean by it, first and foremost, above all else. And that becomes important because in our English language, we are somewhat of a disadvantage in this matter. And I'm saying that because in the early Latin translations of our New Testament, and that was an important series of events when the Bible began to be translated from the original Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic into Latin, the common language of the intelligentsia and the upper classes across the Roman Empire, Well, what happened was, is that the word righteous, they used a Latin term that actually means or sounds like justice in English. And you can see this in that Romans 117 verse that I read to you, where in the Greek, the word righteous or righteousness is the Greek word dikaisune, which is almost everywhere translated as righteousness in our New Testaments, but in the Latin Bible, they use the word justitia, which is spelled J-U-S-T-I-T-I-A. You can see it even looks like the word just or justice. And so this tends to create some kind of a distinction which has no existence in the Bible between these ideas. Now, relatively speaking, when we say something is just, we imply that it's in conformity to the rule of God's law. But then in a broader sense, when we understand the biblical nature of God's law and obedience, we see that it is a demonstration of love to God and to one's neighbor. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. That's a prime example of it. Because love is the fulfilling, the doing of the law. But in neither of these senses does that word convey what we usually mean by justice. Because in the Bible, there's no distinction between the claims of justice and the claims of love. So if we act in opposition to the principles of love to God and love to our neighbor, then we are committing an injustice. And then if that's not challenging enough, we encounter a problem with the use of the word righteousness too. You know, in many uh, reform, well, I I should say in some reformed churches, the meaning of righteous or righteousness has been sort of limited to the of, of a particular church doctrine. And in the thick of these things, people forget that righteousness also means justice. 
God's justice is that which must govern every area of life and thought. Paul begins this letter to the Romans with the salutation in verses 1 through 7. And getting into the text now, he uses two words to describe himself, the Greek word doulos and the Greek word apostolain. And the word doulos has reference to bondage or slavery. So he begins this letter by declaring that he is the property or the possession of Jesus Christ. Now here's one of these areas where, as I said at the very beginning, it will be very helpful for us and even crucial that we come to some understanding of what that looked like and what that would have implied. Because today, when we hear, especially here in the South, we use or hear the word slavery, it conjures up certain types of images. Regardless of how inaccurate those images may be to what slavery was really like here in South Carolina, for example. But even if we had an absolutely perfect picture of what it was like to be a slave here or a slave owner or somebody who lived in an area where there were slaves and slave owners, but they themselves did not. The point is, none of that is remotely similar to what was going on in slave, with slaves in Roman society. I mean, only in the vaguest sense is there a similarity. Because in Roman society, for example, if a slave owner was a man of high standing, well, that gave the slave such a standing as well. And sometimes we know from Roman history that the emperor's slaves were married to freeborn women. And because of that, the slave often held an administrative position of power and with a fair amount of economic security. He was less subject to problems than, say, someone who was administrator in a freeborn situation because he was, by ownership, a lesser member of the imperial family. And Paul, in describing himself to be a slave of Christ Jesus, means that he is God's property and also that he is a member of the household of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords people would have been very familiar with what the slaves looked like and what they did and how they benefited from being a slave owned by the emperor as opposed to just some lower-ranked person. And something worth realizing here is that typically slaves in Roman society were, were the result of having been taken captive in a war. You know, the Romans would mount an attack for whatever reason and conquer some hapless people, and the men who had not already been killed in the battle would be executed if they were thought to be a threat, and then the older people who were basically of no use would have been eliminated, and that left the younger men who were of some degree of health and the women and the children. And those people would be sold as slaves anywhere across the empire. So how does that apply here with Paul? Was, was he taken prisoner in a Roman war? No, but he was taken prisoner in that sense. And it happened on the road to Damascus. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9. He was taken captive by Christ Jesus. But now he also speaks here of his apostleship. An apostle, you know, is an envoy or an ambassador. And Paul declares that by God's grace, he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, this is another term. And yes, we've talked about this on other occasions, but it, it's worth repeating here. This is another term that had definite meaning and application in that society and among those people. Because long before Paul came on the scene, long before Jesus Christ came on the scene, 
in that part of the world. It was a common term, apostle, that applied to a particular type of messenger. See, when somebody from the Roman government, whether it be a governor, a magistrate, uh, the emperor himself, if they were traveling to a certain part of their jurisdiction, a, a, a certain amount of fanfare and, and celebration would be forced to be had among the people who were the recipients of the, the visit from, we'll say, the emperor. And so the messenger would go forward to that place and say, you know, he would announce the soon arrival, parousia in Greek, for those of you who know what that means, the soon arrival, the presence of the coming emperor. And the one who was sent forward to make that announcement and make those arrangements was called an apostle. So an apostle is an envoy or an ambassador. And Paul wants all who read this and hear this to understand that his credentials are therefore both apostle and slave servant. Now when we think about the importance of this book, and especially the importance of Romans in the larger scheme of Protestant Reformation history and theology, Martin Luther looms large, and rightfully so, as one who had a huge impact on our understanding of salvation by grace alone, by faith alone. And in his great book, Commentary on Romans, he even suggested, and I'm quoting him here, that because Paul is the servant of such a great Lord, he, Paul, is to be received with the same reverence as if he were Christ himself. That's what Luther wrote. And you wonder, did Dr. Luther lose his mind at that point? He is to be received with the same reverence as if he were Christ himself? Does that sound really bizarre to us? Well, let me tell you, friends, it should not. It shouldn't at all. Maybe we've forgotten what Jesus himself declared, as recorded in Luke ten sixteen: The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. I think that's all Luther is saying about Paul there. So the confidence and inner strength in Paul comes from his knowing that his commission and authority are in and from Christ Jesus. Now, if you just look down at verse 9, it's not part of what we read, but if you look at verse 9, you'll notice the phrase there where he says, God is my witness. You see that? So he's literally claiming that God himself confirms his credentials. And concerning that, it was John Calvin who pointed out in his sermons and commentary on Romans that this is the language of covenant oath. This is what Calvin wrote. He, for, he said, For since an oath is nothing else but an appeal to God as to the truth of what we declare, most foolish it is to deny that the apostle here used an oath. See, Paul doesn't write these words just to hear himself talk or to fill up a page. The claim to be an apostle was meant to clearly remind anyone who reads his words of his authority. Now we know from the teachings of the New Testament and the words of Christ himself that the apostles were inspired by God. And in being religious teachers, they were setting down the word of the Lord. And in doing that, they were infallible. Where do you come up with that idea, Pastor? John sixteen thirteen. Jesus said, When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you, apostles, into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you of the things to come. So they speak with apostolic 
God-ordained authority when they teach and speak, but then they also were workers of miracles. They were empowered to demonstrate signs and wonders as further evidence of the arrival of the kingdom. And by laying on of hands, they could communicate power to others. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 19. They ordained pastors and exercised general jurisdiction over the churches. Acts 14, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 10, 1 Timothy 1. And so right up front here, Paul tells us about his authority, about these things in particular, but then he also, in these verses, makes some very remarkable observations about Christ Jesus. He declares that he is the Son of God, but yet he's also the descendant of the royal line of David according to the flesh. Now, that phrase, according to the flesh, is a very important one. And it is so because it makes clear to us, even here in this early stage, that Jesus Christ has two natures, human and divine. He's not just some human being who is a really good guy and we should pay attention to him. And he's not this ghost-like divine figure who's not human at all. He's fully God and not, has nothing human about him. No, he's both human and divine. Paul gets right down to business then at the beginning by declaring the shattering fact The implication is that he's human and divine, but the really shattering fact that proved to be the great stumbling block, as he would call it, is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The resurrection was God's confirmation of the deity of Christ and of his divine office. Jesus was David's son according to the flesh, and he was and is the divine son of God according to the spirit of holiness, verses 3 and 4. Now, I have made references already to Luther and Calvin's commentaries and observations on parts of this book. There's one other resource that I think would benefit us uh, greatly in this early stage, and it came from the able writing and mind of our great father in the faith, Charles Hodge, former president of Princeton Seminary and one of the leaders of our Presbyterian movement in this country. Now, if you look again at verse 5, there's this phrase, about the obedience of faith. He says, Paul writes, for whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So in his commentary, Hodge gives us a clear sense of the meaning of this phrase, the obedience of faith, in verse 5 there. And Hodge says this, and I'm quoting him. The obedience of faith is that obedience which consists in faith or of which faith is the controlling principle. Notice the emphasis, it's that obedience that's controlled by faith. He says, the design of the apostleship was to bring all nations so to believe in Christ the Son of God that they should be entirely devoted to his service. Jesus said at the end of Matthew, it recorded there, go and make all the nations my disciples. You see, what many people simply pass over in Paul's writing is the worldwide application of God's justice. Because in both Habakkuk, the original source of the wording, and in Romans, God's word declares that the just shall live by faith. And I think that statement is to declare that all men and all nations have a duty and an obligation to live in terms of God's righteousness or justice. And Charles Hodge wrote that Paul is saying, in effect, we have received a mission among all nations. And again in verse 5, 
I'll read it from a slightly different translation this time. To bring people from every nation to obedience. And then if you look at verse 6, he makes sure the Christians at Rome understand that their part in this, including, he says, you who were called to belong to Christ Jesus. They belong to Christ because he has called them. And the word translated called there from the Greek implies God's sovereign choice. It connects directly with what Jesus said in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Paul declares himself to be the servant or slave in God's house. And he reminds the Romans that they are also of the household of the great king of kings. So they are so only because of God's election and predestination. And one of the many benefits of that is the blessings of grace and peace from our Lord. So this this marvelous introduction is the lead up to the great declaration in this book, the just shall live by faith. Now concerning that, I'd like to observe that there has been for some time what I will call a sad misunderstanding concerning the theme, that theme in Romans. And I think this misunderstanding goes all the way back to Martin Luther and his teachings and understanding of these words, as great as those things were. The reason I think there's a problem there slightly is that because first, Martin Luther's own struggles with his salvation And the time and place in which he was dealing with that struggle, the context of the Roman Catholic theology and culture of that time. So that when he came to see the light of God's grace, and praise God that he did, he ended up placing a serious limitation, I think, on the meaning of the text. Because scripture does not say, either in Habakkuk or in Romans, that the just are saved by faith. No, it says they live by faith. And the word translated live there, zesestai in Greek, yes, it begins with salvation, that life, that living, but it includes much, much more than salvation. And I think the problem is that Luther reduced the meaning and he he limited it to this, to, to mean salvation in terms of justification. Yes, justification and salvation are the starting point, but they are not the end point. Another way I can put this to you is that if you, and I'm not asking you to do this now, but if you know the shorter catechism well enough, you know that we have question 33, what is justification? Question 34, what is adoption? But then there's also question 35, what is sanctification? Paul says that the justified are also doing something. They're living by faith. So what has happened over the years is that fundamentalist Christians especially have, have limited this, this sentence to mean that it only refers to what they call being saved. Any of you remember the guy that used to show up at the baseball games or football games and he'd sit in a, a visible place either behind home plate or behind one, of the, one end of the, of the goal, uh, goal posts and he would hold up this big placard that all it said was John 3.16. See, he's a reference to, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that Bible verse. 
And, and this sort of thing, that sort of mindset, whether it's the placard at the ball game or the, the way this, these passages in Romans have been misunderstood, it contributes to what Dr. Rushduni called John 3.16 preaching. Preaching for conversion, but not for sanctification, not for dominion and the totality of God's law over all areas of life. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood. I I don't deny, and there's no denying, the blessings bestowed by God via the Protestant Reformation's emphasis on God's sovereign grace and man's justification and salvation, and hallelujah, praise God for it. But the fact is, many who followed Luther restricted Romans 1.17 to salvation, that is to what they call, quote, getting saved. Now, there's nothing wrong with that phrase if it's understood biblically. The problem is, in the minds of many people, especially here in the South and especially in fundamentalist and independent Bible-type churches, getting saved, quote-unquote, means you go forward at an altar call and you, you allow Jesus to come into your heart, they will say, and that's what getting saved is. And then they'll go on to assure you that because you did that, you are saved forever. Once saved, always saved is their doctrine. Thankfully, our Calvinistic reformers understood better. And that is why, in our Westminster Confession, we have a chapter on the perseverance of the saints. There is a world of difference between the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, and the the corrupted evangelical teaching of once saved, always saved. Because, you see, the phrase perseverance of the saints is exactly what Paul and Christ are talking about here in the New Testament. The obedience of faith implies persevering, acting, moving forward, working through this call on your life. Yes, you are saved, but the evidence of your salvation is that you persevere. Maybe you're you're in the process of being fully sanctified. You maybe fall off the the wagon once or twice, but by God's grace, by the power of God's Spirit, you get back up and you move forward. Over time, this corrupted understanding of justification by faith has led us directly to where we are today, my friends. A faith that is largely defeatist and in retreat. It's led to the point where our churches and the message of the gospel and the kingdom have largely been ignored and viewed as totally irrelevant to the lives and thinking of most people in our culture. And okay, there's plenty enough blame to go around for that. I saw a statistic just recently that said that uh, for the first time in anyone's memory or recorded history in these United States, church membership was below 50% across all categories. And I can suppose that one reason for that is that our churches have become largely irrelevant and meaningless to most people. Now, realizing that that's led some churches to get on the bandwagon and say, okay, well, we got to be really relevant so people will pay attention to us. And that is a vicious cycle because it contributes to the irrelevance. Listen, if the pagans in our culture want to go to a rock and roll concert, they've got better sense than go to a church to try to get it. You know, if they want a feel-good, positive confession-type message and you can overcome all your problems, they know they're going to get it from a secular, you know, pep-talk, positive-thinking-type person than some skinny jean pastor in one of the megachurches. Besides, that's not the kingdom message anyway. But ideas have consequences, as someone once said. If we have limited 
the application of God's justification, sanctification to just this one supposed event, and it has no more claim on our lives, it's our little ticket to heaven when we die, then that has powerful ramifications over time, and it leads us directly to where we are now. I'm reminded of something that supposedly happened when Joseph Stalin was the premier or dictator of the Soviet Union. Now, I don't remember all the context of this, so please forgive me for getting the facts a little bit mixed up, but the essential thing is this. He was going to move into some area in Eastern Europe that was heavily Roman Catholic, and one of his advisors said, well, wait a minute, aren't you concerned about the Pope? To which Stalin replied, the Pope? How many armies does he have? In other words, <laughs> he has none. He's dead to me. He has become, just as many of our churches in that way, largely irrelevant to the world around us. Friends, Paul wrote this letter as the apostle, the ambassador of Christ Jesus, the king of all creation. And so we dare not confine its meaning and its message, the message of the kingdom, to what happens just within the four walls of this building, to the church alone. Because if we do that, we are horribly misapplying it and misunderstanding it. And by God's grace, let us persevere therein to the end and live out the obedience of faith and bring this message to all nations as Paul requires of us. Let us pray.